So, uh, thank you, Pastor Aaron. My name is Nate Loper, and it is a privilege to be able to come back and uh, spend some time with you guys this evening. And I kind of moved off the stage so I can be down here closer to you guys tonight, because I don't like being up there. I'm not that fancy, so I like to be down here where you guys are at. So, uh, for those of you who weren't here last week, um, I'll tell you a little bit about who I am, what we do. So, uh, I work out here with an organization called Canyon Ministries, and if you're familiar with that, probably because Adam here is one of our fantastic guides there, and oversees our backpacking program and things like that, but... We have been a Christian kind of tour company ministry up here in Grand Canyon country for the past 24 years now. And so we get an amazing opportunity to daily, every day except for Sundays, take people on amazing adventures at the Grand Canyon, rim tours, backpacking trips, hiking tours, all kinds of fun stuff, to basically use what God has given us in this amazing place called Flagstaff, right in our own backyard, to uh, proclaim his glory and uh, to show people uh, evidence for a worldwide global flood. And so we do a lot of talking on geology. Uh, a lot about people history, some about archaeology with the Native Americans and stuff like that. So we live in a fantastic place. Would you agree? I love it. So uh, I kind of grew up in, I was born in Phoenix, grew up in this area, kind of lived my whole life mostly on the Colorado Plateau, lived in Flagstaff back in the 80s and then moved away and then uh, spent a few years in Los Angeles, about eight years, pastoring at a church out there before God delivered us and brought us back to Flagstaff. So don't go to Los Angeles, it's a crazy place. But anyhow, it is a privilege to come with you guys tonight to share one of my other passions beyond just geology in the Grand Canyon, and that is biblical archaeology. So for the past, oh, about 10 years now, I've been able to kind of teach and speak on biblical archaeology in different churches and schools and things like that. So um, when I heard you guys were kind of doing the kind of Genesis and then Exodus, and then I heard through the grapevine, hey, it would be great to have somebody come in. I'm like, let's do it. So I want to share with you guys a few things. Last week, we kind of talk a little bit about Joseph and the transition of the people of Israel, you know, the Hebrew people coming into Egypt, and perhaps where we can find them and identify that particular people group in Egypt. Now, many times, modern-day um, you know, Egyptology and things like that, oftentimes they will say, well, there's no evidence for you know, the book of Genesis or the book of Exodus. There's no evidence for the Hebrew people. And how many of you guys know, many times, the world at large, especially those in scientific communities and those who don't believe in God's word as foundation, They'll try to do anything to kind of discredit God's word and to try to throw that out. Well, in the opposite realm, there's a fantastic group of biblical creationists, biblical archaeologists, people that study and do this. And you know what? We find amazing evidence all around, not only for God's creation events, but also for the historical events we find in the Bible. Because as someone who believes in the God's word, the Bible, to be true, cover to cover, I believe not only are the things of science and history to be true, but everything else in there as well. So we don't just believe the book of uh, the Bible is just a, a spiritual book, right? It's not just about good feelings and about, you know, spiritual matters. It is that, but it's so much more. We can believe God's word to be true on spiritual matters and also things of science, things of history, things that have happened in the past. We can place our faith on that sure foundation of God's word. And that's what we do at Candy Ministries. That's what we do here. And that's what I'm going to share with you guys tonight. I want to talk a little bit about Exodus and Egypt going to give you guys a biblical archaeological perspective. So one of my big passions in studying biblical archaeology is what we call Egyptology, and that is a study of ancient Egypt. That's really where I tend to gravitate towards. Uh, for the past three years, I've been studying kind of Egyptology pretty intensely, so learning ancient Egyptian hieroglyphics, really studying not just what the Bible talks about regarding the historical events of the past, but what do we find in ancient Egyptian records? What do we find in archaeology over there? Where can we see God's Word come alive even in external sources other than the Bible. And so it's exciting to be able to talk about that tonight. So kind of three main topics we're going to talk about. We could spend multiple days here talking about lots of stuff regarding uh, Egypt and the Bible, but there's a few couple topics I do want to talk about tonight. One of them is, why do some people discount the Exodus? What is it about modern-day archaeology sometimes, not, not everybody, but some within that realm, that say the Exodus never happened? There's no evidence for the Exodus. That book is all make-believe, and it's all fantasy and fairy tale. We're going to talk about some of the reasons why. We're also going to talk about when do I feel that the Exodus occurred. Based upon God's word, what evidence do we find in there that shows us, yes, the Exodus occurred, and when can we kind of pinpoint it? And then, because we can use the Bible as a source to pinpoint when it happened, we can then jump to the next one, which is kind of, can we identify the possible pharaohs in the Exodus. Now, how many of you guys reading the Bible, reading the book of Exodus, have ever wondered, boy, I wonder who that Pharaoh is? Let's see. Hands all over the room, right? We've all kind of thought that, like, 
we get names. The Bible doesn't really tell us all the names of the pharaohs. There are multiple pharaohs that are named in the Bible that we actually find in Egyptian history, like uh, Shishak and um, like Taharka. There's a few names that are given in later periods, but in the early days with Abraham, with Joseph, with Moses, we're not really given the names of those particular pharaohs. So we're going to talk tonight, can we identify some of those possible pharaohs uh, in the Bible, and when did that happen, when did that take place? So the first question, why do some people discount the Exodus? Now there's of course a few different things behind this, a few different topics that go behind why people discount the Exodus perhaps, but one of the biggest ones comes from what I believe to be a misunderstanding of God's Word. And a particular verse, Exodus chapter 1, verse 11, talking about, right here, they appointed taskmasters over them to oppress them with hard labor. They built up for Pharaoh storage cities, Pithom and Ramses. How many of you guys have read that verse before? Pretty much everybody, right? How many of you guys have thought, well, I wonder where those cities are? Pretty much everybody. Looking at this particular verse, many people have oftentimes said, okay, looking at these cities, if we can identify these cities and when they were built, we can identify the Pharaoh who was in charge, right? Kind of makes some logical sense. But let's continue to kind of dive in and see what this verse is really saying, what it's really talking about. Now, many times, how many of you guys have seen a lot of movies? Anybody seen any movie on the Exodus or Moses or anything like that, like the old Cecil Bill, Cecil B. DeMille's, you know, great film, not exactly accurate. Um, as many times you'll see throughout Hollywood, Hollywood rarely gets it right, do they? I mean, do they ever get it right? How many of you guys saw the, the Noah movie a few years ago? Ooh, don't do it. If you haven't seen it, let it go. Go to the source book, the history book of the universe. It's much better in there. But looking at things like this verse has led many people to think, okay, the storehouses of Pithom and Ramses, oh, that word Ramses, that's a name of a pharaoh, right? And in some of those old films, we know exactly what the pharaoh was of the Exodus. We know exactly what he talked like, what he sounded like, even what he looked like, right? Yeah. Well, you old Brenner. So looking at that verse, the storehouses of Pithom and Ramses, many people have said, ah, Ramses, that city of Ramses, that must mean that Ramses was a pharaoh. And so they begin to look at Ramses the Great, Ramses II, as becoming the pharaoh of the Exodus. How many of you people have seen a movie in Hollywood that has Ramses as the pharaoh of the Exodus? I know I grew up with it, the Ten Commandments, right? I mean, that's all we heard about. Well, if we look at what the Bible actually teaches us, we begin to compare that to Egyptian history, we begin to see that Hollywood got it wrong. Looking at this pharaoh, good old Yul Brynner, way to go guy, he's looking mighty happy there, isn't he? He's about to get a lot worse for him. Um, anyhow, looking at this whole event and this whole movie, it doesn't exactly portray the correct pharaoh. So when you come back to this whole understanding of Pithom and Ramses, what are we looking at here? The Bible does give us the name, the identification of two different cities. But are those cities, do those cities have the names going all the way back to when this, this was written, or were those names perhaps changed later on in what we call an anachronism. That's a big long word. It's going to be the longest word I'm going to teach you guys tonight. So an anachronism is basically an update to something that you're reading. So for example, this city of Ramses. Anybody know where that city is? Some of you guys might. How many of you guys know the different names that the city has had over thousands of years? So the city of Ramses, we've identified kind of up here in the, in the uh, Nile Delta right up here in the biblical land of Goshen. Okay, so here's Ramses. That's been pretty solidly identified. And then Pithom, this is the most agreed upon location here. Two major cities in this region of Goshen. Now, who was living in Goshen, the Bible tells us? The Hebrew people, right? When, Mo or sorry, when Joseph came in and Jacob, his father, came in, they moved into the best piece of land, and Pharaoh gave him this land of Goshen. And during that same time period we see, as we talked about last week, there just so happened to be another group of, you know, Semitic people that kind of migrated in peacefully, dwelt in the best land, raised flocks of sheep just like the Hebrew people did, lived in all the same places, all the same thing that the Greeks later on called the Hyksos. We talked a little bit about that last week. I believe that the, the Greek word Hyksos, um, coming from this Hekachasut or Hekachasut word from the Egyptian, is the Egyptian and Greek equivalent for the Hebrew people that were living there. We can talk about that later, but that was kind of last week. But they just so happened to live at the right place, at the right time, with the right background and characteristics, 
looking at this, we've kind of identified where those cities were. But Ramses is actually a much later name for this exact city or this exact location. In fact, over the years, there's been many names. Originally in Egyptian, it was called Hawara. And so that word Hawara was taken by the Greeks, and they kind of dropped some, some uh, words in there, some uh, letters, and that became Avaris or Hawaris. And so that's kind of where we see the city of Avaris, which was that capital city of uh, the Hyksos people. But then after that, it was also known as Peru Nefer, which is a great, beautiful port city. It was also known later on as the city of Ramses, a little bit further on. It was also known as Kantir. And nowadays, the archaeological site we have there is called Tel El Daba. And so over the millennia, we have different names for the same location. And that's what we kind of refer to as an anachronism, an update of, of a city or a location or a name over time that's given for the modern day readers to understand. So for example, if I were to tell you guys, you know, up the Grand Canyon, we have amazing people history up there. If I were to tell you, you know, that Coronado and his men came in to uh, southern Mexico, came up through New Mexico and into Arizona back in the year 1540. Anybody ever heard that before? Well, in 1540, Mexico didn't exist. New Mexico didn't exist. Arizona was not named Arizona, was it? What have I just done? I've told you locations that you, as an audience, are familiar with today, right? But back in 1540, was it called any of that? No way. So back in 1540, when Coronado and his men are recording the locations around here, they're not calling it Arizona. They're not calling it New Mexico. They're not even calling it the Grand Canyon. All of these names that we are familiar with today, if I give you a reference, you know exactly what I'm talking about, right? But back in 1540, they wrote completely different things. The same would be true in, in many things in America. So for example, how many guys know where the great city of New Amsterdam is here in the United States? A couple of you, all right. How many of you guys know where the great city of New York is? Oh, just about everybody. Well, how many of you know that New York used to be New Amsterdam? So it was originally a Dutch colony, right around the year 1623. They moved into New York, and they, they were New Amsterdam, I should say. And so the Dutch held that colony all the way until, eight, I'm sorry, until 1664, when it was turned over to the English. And so here you can see an illustration of Peter Stuyvesant turning it over to the English people. Now, my grandfather, many generations back, James Loper, was actually present at that handover when that took place. He's probably the guy without any shoes on, knowing my family, right? But anyhow, my ancestors lived right there, and they were part of the original Dutch colony. In fact, I know exactly where their house is. You can walk in Pearl and Stone Street in Manhattan, and right there, the old Goldman Sachs giant skyscraper was originally my great, 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 Jacobus Loper, like generations back, right on the exact same corner. Now, in those days, it was known as New Amsterdam. And when I said New Amsterdam, many of you guys are like, I know, I know Amsterdam. When I said New York, everybody's like, oh, yeah, I know New York, right? And that's what we call an anachronism. Back in those days, it was called New Amsterdam. Nowadays, if I'm referring to New Amsterdam, most of you guys are scratching your heads saying, I don't know where that is. So I'm going to refer to it as New York, right? Just like we refer to Arizona today, even though it's had a much longer history than just, you know, since we became a state. Looking at the names in the Bible, sometimes we have some evidence, actually, multiple places in the scripture that names have been updated over time to give the modern-day readers and audience an understanding of what they're actually reading, what they're understanding. So when we look at scripture, we can see that over time, you know, it's been translated and then copied, and even the languages, even the, the written, you know, letters and forms have been updated over time. Our modern-day Hebrew that we typically see and read and learn and understand is not even what we consider to be kind of the classical biblical Hebrew. And even before then, before when Moses was around, they didn't even have the written alphabet language that we would use for Hebrew. Over thousands of years, it's undergone many different changes and revisions. So right around Moses' time, we would be looking at this column over here. This would kind of be your alphabetic language. This would be oftentimes what we refer to as proto sinaitic because we oftentimes find inscriptions out in the Sinai Peninsula so proto, like an early form of written alphabet in the Sinai Peninsula, proto-Sinaitic. So around Moses' time, this is the language that was actually beginning to develop and to emerge. And many people have said this is actually the world's first alphabetic language. Pretty cool. Before then, it was a lot of pictures and words that symbolized sounds. And that's even what 
ancient Egyptian is. We study that. It's not an alphabetic language, and it's not exactly a pictorial language. It's not like a fish necessarily means a fish, but sometimes it can mean a fish. If it's at the end of something, it's really complicated. So for anybody to learn like ancient Egyptian, you would have to learn literally hundreds of different signs and symbols. Today, we have an alphabetic language, 26 letters, right? And those combinations give us the ability to speak and to read and to understand. Well, ancient Egyptian, they literally had hundreds of signs and symbols, and many of those have changed over the hundreds and even a couple thousand years. But it began to develop into this proto-Sinaitic when these began to represent not just a picture, like, for example, an ox head here. So that ox head became the letter A. You can kind of see how it changed to a sideways A. And then later on, it developed into this word here, or this letter there. And so the first letter in modern-day Hebrew is what we call Aleph, and that's kind of the ox head symbol. But over time, it developed. So around the time of Moses, you would see the first column. Well, about 500 years after that, around 1000 BC, in the time of the kings, they were using what we refer to as Paleo-Hebrew. The letters had changed from pictorial symbols into written kind of symbols that represent sounds. And so here's what we kind of see here. The middle and late and begin to develop into actually sounds. Begin to develop into a written actual language. So even the writings of Moses would have been written in one form, and then somebody else later on would change that form and write it in the modern day form. And most likely as they're writing that, they would say, a virus. We haven't been called, we haven't called that in 300 years. It's nowadays called Pithom and Ramses. So they would change and update that. Our modern day Hebrew, that we use, we see in our Bibles, or kind of translate from, that modern day Hebrew wasn't even used by the Hebrew people until they went into captivity into Babylon. It's actually a form of Eastern Aramaic, the written letters that they actually took from ancient Babylon. So looking at that, we have a change over time, even how the, the people of Israel would write. So during the classical period, during the time of the kings, basically from the establishment of the judges all the way till the end, to about 586, they were using this Paleo-Hebrew, and that's what you find in inscriptions, that's what you find in some of the oldest manuscripts, that's what you find on coins and different stamps and beulah and things like that. But then later on, it's updated again. Well, then that is taken and later on updated throughout time. As people are, you know, copying scriptures, sometimes we get changes within some locations based upon what the modern day reference is. Our oldest, you know, complete manuscripts of the Bible, the kind of the Hebrew Masoretic, goes back to only about 1000 AD. So a thousand years after Christ is our complete total manuscript. Looking at that, we can tell that there's been some, not, not changes in what the Bible says, but some updates. So a word that perhaps we would see today, like Ramses, might not have been recorded as Ramses originally, but then later when they're updating it and going back in, and when uh, Ezra goes back in, they find the scriptures, or they go back out of captivity, they go back and they find the scriptures, they begin to pull them back out and read them to the people. It says that they're talking about, they're updating them, they're reading to the people who couldn't understand at that point the scriptures. They couldn't even read the language at that point. Ezra and about 14 people actually kind of revitalized the scriptures and now reading it to the people. And so most likely around that time period, they said, oh, this city hasn't been called that in hundreds and hundreds of years, but we know what it is nowadays. So anybody trying to understand, read it nowadays. Does that make sense? All right, that's an anachronism. So in understanding what we see in scripture, when we read in there, we look at archeology, span we tend to get an understanding that perhaps this city that we read nowadays is referred to as Ramses, was not known as Ramses when it was originally recorded by Moses, when they were pinning scriptures at that point. And then later on, it was changed, just like we would say, New York, New Amsterdam, okay? So we look at that. There's a couple examples we can see in scripture, but we'll kind of skip through that tonight. But I do want to talk about this time period of Ramses. Because many times, people have tried to understand when the Pharaoh was. They tried to understand who that Pharaoh was. And as they saw, you know, with uh, Yul Brynner there, Pharaoh, of course, in Hollywood, and in many times, sometimes even in archaeology, they would say, well, Pithom and Ramses, it must have been Ramses, right? So let's talk about Ramses. This is a picture that's actually uh, the British Museum the statue is. So last time I was over there, he took a great picture of the great Ramses II looking down on us. Ramses is believed to have reigned and been around from about 1279 to 1213 BC. And so looking at this, when people go and examine the archaeological evidence of this time period, many times they don't find any evidence of any sort of you know, Hebrew people in Egypt or any sort of you know, problem that the Exodus might have caused to the Egyptians, you know, like all the plagues and all that kind of stuff taking place, 
the losing of, you know, 600 plus horses and chariot men in uh, the Red Sea, the conquest of Canaan. So when they're looking at this time period, when Ramses II was around, they're not finding any evidence of that. Um, in fact, we were just talking beforehand, right, talking about the conquest of Canaan and Jericho and things like that. And they go and they look around this time period where they kind of look at the different levels of when cities were existing, when they got destroyed, and when they got rebuilt. When they look around this time period about Ramsey's time, we don't find really any evidence for major destruction in ancient cities like Jericho. And so they look at this and say, there's no evidence for this exodus. There's no evidence for this conquest of Canaan. Therefore, the Bible must be false. And then you say, well, where do we find evidence for destruction and perhaps you know burning and, and a, a new group coming into the land? Well, we don't find it in this time period. We find something about 200 years before. There's all kinds of you know burn layers and things like that in Jericho, and there was a pretty good destruction 200 years before, but here, nothing. So the Bible's wrong, right? Or maybe their starting point is wrong. Maybe this pharaoh and this time period that they're looking at is completely wrong. And that's what I'm going to say tonight. We're not going to get our understanding of biblical history by simply looking at Egyptian history. We're going to get our understanding of biblical history by going to the Bible, right? What does the Bible tell us? It actually gives us some pretty good indicators of some of these events and some of the timing. One of those is found in the book of 1 Kings. 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 1 tells us, in the 480th year after the Israelites came out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Ziv, which is the second month, he began to build the house of the Lord. So this tells us when they were starting to build the, uh, the temple. The first temple there. And it gives us a, basically a timeline. 480th year after the Israelites came out of the land of Egypt and in the fourth year of Solomon's reign. Well, we have a pretty good understanding based on history of when Solomon reigned. So therefore, if we know when Solomon reigned, we know when the temple began to be built, we can kind of backtrack to find out what is the date of the Exodus, when they came out of Egypt. And so looking at that, the traditional year for Solomon's coronation when he became king is right about 970 B.C. Pretty good records with that. There's also a really good record of what we see in the Bible called Jubilees that actually add up to a perfect date. And that date comes up to 1446 B.C. Now that's a little bit earlier than Ramses II, right? In fact, when you look at it, 1446 versus 1213 B.C., that's a 233-year difference. So in other words, if you're an archaeologist, and you're trying to find evidence for the Bible, and you're looking at the year 1213 B.C., well, guys, you are looking 233 years too late. You need to kind of roll it back a little bit. And just like we talked about, when you do start to look 200 years before then, all of a sudden we see there's a group that moves into uh, Canaan. They come and lay waste to some of these cities. We find burned scorch marks throughout Jericho. In fact, we find big, massive pots in Jericho that still contain grain, and they've been left and abandoned in the city. And so what did the Bible tell us when they went into Jericho? What did God command them to do? Touch nothing. Leave it there, right? Don't take anything. Leave it as it is. Don't loot it. You're going to destroy it, but you leave it there. And of course, we know that Achan didn't do that, and he actually took some with him into his tent, and that led to the fall of the next battle, right? But we see that the Bible tells us exactly what happened. Now, an invading army, typically coming into a place like Jericho, would not leave grain behind because grain feeds your army. It feeds your people. They would take it, but we find evidence of grain still stored in jars, left behind, and we find destruction all throughout in Jericho at this particular moment in time, right around the conquest of Canaan, according to an Exodus date of 1446 B.C. So if the Bible tells us an indication of that, and there are a few other places we can also draw from in there, but if the Bible tells us an indication of when this took place, why don't we believe it? We should. I start with the Bible. God's Word is our foundation and we build upon that. So if we look at this correct time period, I typically place the Exodus right around the year 1446 BC, within a couple years, right around that same time period right there. Now if we look in Egyptian history during this time, that places us right in the middle of what we call the 18th dynasty of Egypt, okay? Dynasty is basically people groups and families and power movements that shifted and changed over time. We get a lot of the understanding of our modern day dynasties from the ancient Egyptian historian Manetho. Um, and then even today, there's still disagreements on when dynasties happened. Were they happening at the same time, depending on where people live? But when we look at this time period, 1446, we get a pretty under good understanding of the 18th dynasty of Egypt, which gives us these names. Now, reading some of these names, 
they're probably somewhat familiar to some of you, right? Um, if you've read anything about Egyptian history or biblical history, a lot of these names might step out and come out because there's a lot of really great things that happened in Egyptian history during this time period. And it's not just me, but many other people have also tried to identify and have seen this being the exact location during this time frame. So looking at Ahmos, the first all the way down through here, this is not the entire 18th dynasty, but this is a list of the pharaohs that I believe kind of have something to do with the biblical events from the time when they became slaves in Egypt all the way till the time they left. And so um, coming down through here, we come to right down here near the bottom here, we've got Tutmos III and Amenhotep II. That's the time frame that most biblical archaeologists have kind of pinpointed as far as when the Exodus would have occurred. Now, how many of you guys have heard of either of those names? Tutmos, Amenhotep, pretty common. Most of you guys have heard of that. Good. So when we look at that, we look at these names, there's some debate back and forth on which of these two might have been the pharaoh of the Exodus. And so we'll kind of dive into these two pharaohs tonight, a little bit about Tutmos III and his son, Amenhotep II. Now, for me personally, um, I've been studying this exact topic on these guys for the past three or four years now pretty intensely, even studying ancient Egyptian records, um, things that are like in the British Museum and the Petrie Museum over in London, which has um, fantastic what we call papyrus or papyri, where you can read some of the ancient you know, manuscripts that talk about the timeline and what's happening throughout Egypt at that time, because even when you study what happened in ancient Egypt, it supports God's word, and you can see many of those events come together. For my money, I put it on Amenhotep II. We're going to talk tonight a little bit about why. So between these two guys, why Amenhotep II? Um, the word Amenhotep is kind of actually two different words, Amen and Hotep, which Amen means to be satisfied, and Hotep is the name of one of the Egyptian gods. So that means Hotep is satisfied. I'm sorry, the other way around. Hotep means satisfied. Amen is like Amen-Ra. So Amen is satisfied is the name that you would have for there. And so looking at their names here kind of gives an indication of maybe some of the time period. It's also interesting, let me go back to here, I didn't even put this in my notes and think about it, but that word we have for the leader of the Exodus, his name was Moses. Well, just so happens in a particular time period in Egyptian history, we have a lot of pharaohs and a lot of other people also named with this exact same Moses or Mose name to it. And you can look up here, Ahmos, Tutmos, another Tutmos, another Tutmos. There's all these names, and this Mose is another, it's the second end of that word that you would see there. So uh, Tutmos, for example, means the, the god Thoth is satisfied. And so you can see here all these different names added into there. So it's interesting to look at, during Ramsey's time, we don't really see this name Mose or Moses used very much. But we do find it right in this exact time period we're looking at. That's bonus tonight. That wasn't even in Anyhow, looking at why Amenhotep II. Let's talk a little bit about Egyptian history. It's going to be fun. So first of all, looking at Amenhotep II, I place it at the right time. So looking at the time frame of Egyptian history, when did Amenhotep rule? Well, there's a couple different thoughts behind that. You have what we refer to as the low Egyptian chronology and the high Egyptian chronology. Now, all the way from early Egyptian history and archaeology, all the way up until right around the mid-1960s when a lot of... Uh, liberal thought came into academics and into uh, Egyptology, most Egyptologists held to an idea of what we call the high Egyptian chronology. And then later on, they've kind of gone to this a little bit lower. The difference between these two is basically 20 years. Not that big a deal when you look at the grand scheme of how long Egypt's been out there. But it makes a big deal to us when we're trying to identify a specific date or specific year. So even in modern day Egyptology, there's a difference between high Egyptian chronology and low Egyptian chronology. And it really has to do with what we refer to as uh, the annual rising of the star, we call uh, Sirius today. Back then they called Sothis. And so we refer to it as the heliacal rise of Sothis. And that was basically the first time of the year you could see the star called Sirius rise just above the horizon and then just before the sun comes up behind it and disappears. You know, it's like the stars, we can't see the stars when the sun is out, right? We have to wait until it gets dark enough. Well, at sunrise, there's a time period where you can barely see the star way out there in the eastern sky, and then the sky gets too bright to see it. Now, the first time that they could see and record that star, that was the Egyptian New Year. That was a big celebration, and that basically ushered in the annual flooding of the Nile, which is the most important event in ancient Egyptian history. So that annual recording has been marked many times throughout Egyptian history when they saw that, when they recorded that location. Now, 
the change between the two years of 20, about 20 years between the two time periods has to do with where they recorded that sighting at. Oftentimes, their traditional site for the annual recording of that star was actually in Memphis, okay? Um, near modern day Cairo, just a little bit south of there. That's kind of the traditional site. During the 18th dynasty, when they tried to date some of this, um, most of those pharaohs were living far down, about 450 miles down the Nile River in Thebes, which is modern day Luxor. And so the debate is, was that sighting recorded in Memphis or 450 miles south in Luxor? And the latitude difference depends on when you could see it. Because you couldn't always see it from the same location depending on which day it was. Now, for my, for my money, I say they stuck with Memphis. And historically, we know that that was the Hall of Records was kept in Memphis. That's where they did most of the observations. Was in Memphis or in Heliopolis right there. And so some archaeologists have said, well, because we found the papyrus that records that down in, in Thebes, um, they must have recorded it from there. But really, there's no supporting evidence for that. So I've even seen a lot of change, people going back to this high chronology. Anyhow, when we look at these two dates, the regnal dates, when they were reigning and living, we have the low chronology for Tutmos III of 1479 to 1426 BC. Or, if you go back to the more traditional high chronology, which I definitely favor, we see that he reigned from right around 1499 BC, right around till the year 1446, maybe a little bit before that. Now, the 1446, does that sound familiar to anybody? So, right around that time period. And for his son, we'll talk about his son in just a minute, but first let's talk about Thutmose III. Thutmose III was a great, powerful leader. He was oftentimes referred to as Napoleon of Egypt. Pretty cool guy. He's actually one of my favorite pharaohs, um, just the amount of stuff that he did. He also had one of the longest reigns in Egypt. Um, he lived until he was 54 years old, which was quite old for Egyptian history. And to be on that throne, basically, for that length of time was pretty cool. Now, I told you guys last week I'm bring a little show and tell today. So I do have an actual Tutmosis III Egyptian scarab I'm going to pass around to you guys tonight. You can take a look at it. So this is about 3,500 years old here. But this records his royal name on here. So you guys can check that out. Um, it says Neb Ma'at Re is his kind of royal name. So you can just pass it around. You guys look trustworthy, right? So the Napoleon of Egypt, Tutmosis III, he's recorded as going throughout the land of Canaan, actually, and defeating many other local tribes and cities and basically subduing the entire land of Canaan during this time period. So he's known basically as a, as a military advance. In fact, looking at here, it's hard to see these people, but these are actually Canaanites. These are Semitic Canaanites, um, kind of like the Amu we talked about last week, the Asiatics. Those are the people that he's subduing, the people that are living around Canaan. So you can see this is actually from Luxor. This is on the hypostella wall of Luxor Temple. And you can see he's basically holding these guys by the hair. And he's got a big stick that he would have been holding, a big mace. Unfortunately, we've lost the block now, but in other pictures we see the same image. Holding a big mace and about to smite his enemies. So he's known as going throughout the land of Canaan and basically clearing out the place. Kind of interesting. You'll see why I think it was. And then his son, Amenhotep II. So according to the low chronology, we're looking at 1426 to 1400 BC. But according to the high chronology, we're looking right around 1446 to 1426, give or take a couple years here and there. I tend to think it's a little bit back than 1446, so maybe 1447, perhaps all the way up to 1454, but not that far back. We begin to look at this Amenhotep II, and to me, we begin to look at what happens here. We see a transition of power, okay, and we see basically a new kid on the block right around the year 1446 BC. Again, the date that we're looking at for the Exodus, right? Now, if we take what we know from Egyptian history and chronology, we look at what the Bible says, it begins to add up. Scripture tells us, Exodus chapter 2, verse 23, gives us a little bit of what's happening here, and it tells us, now it happened in the process of time that the king of Egypt died. Now, this is in reference to Moses being there in the land of Midian, right? Moses was raised in Egypt, you know, basically was taken out of the Nile by the daughter of the Pharaoh, most likely um, a gal named Hatshepsut that we see in history. He was taken, he was raised in the palace, basically. The Bible tells us he was basically afforded everything that he wanted, but he forsook that life. He said, no, I'm not going to do that. I could, you know, he could have grabbed onto that, but he left that life. And then eventually, you know, because he saw an Egyptian, you know, beating basically a Hebrew slave, he killed that Egyptian, buried him in the sand. And then later on, another little fight happened. He said, what, are you going to kill me like you killed that Egyptian last week? And Moses kind of uh, got fearful and ran off and took off. 
travels across from there, across the Sinai, to the land of Midian. He's living with Midian. He meets these beautiful young ladies around a well there that he fights off some people um, so that they could actually water their animals. And then they say, hey, come meet our dad. And so he goes and meets the father, Jethro. And Jethro says, welcome to our family. Which daughter do you want? So he marries one of Jethro's daughters. And he's living there for about 40 years in the land of Midian, basically hiding out staying in Midian, probably in his mind he's going to stay there for the rest of his life, because he's not going back to that land. People want to kill him. But while he's in Midian, Scripture says that it happened in the process of that time that the king of Egypt died. And this takes place right before the time of the burning bush. So we have the setting of what's happening here. This king dies, and then right after that, his father-in-law says to Moses, Now the Lord said to Moses in Midian, Go return to Egypt, for all the men who sought your life are dead. So he's talking with his father Jethro. Jethro says, yep, go ahead and take back there. God tells him to go back. Um, all the people in Egypt, all the men who sought your life are dead. In other words, a pharaoh dies, and then right after that pharaoh dies, God tells Moses, get back to that land that you, you ran away from. I've got a job for you to do. So it's at that moment in history, right after a pharaoh dies, that Moses now goes back to Egypt. Keep that in mind as we continue. So we look at this and we continue. Another interesting thing we have from history, again, not necessarily scripture, but the historian Flavius Josephus records to us about the time of Moses, about the Exodus, about the Pharaoh, and Josephus tells us this. He came to the king, the Pharaoh, he came to the king who had indeed but lately received the government. In other words, this is a brand new Pharaoh, a new kid on the block, you might say. This guy has recently come to power. This is not a long-time reigning pharaoh. This is probably not an older guy. It's probably a young guy that had just become pharaoh. What Josephus tells us matches up with what scripture says. If the pharaoh dies, a new guy is going to come to be the king, and Moses comes and presents himself before the brand new pharaoh. You can read that in the Antiquities of the Jews, and you can see the reference there if you like. Fantastic account um, of some interesting things. Now, it's also interesting to note Josephus writes this, and he was born in the year AD 37. So Josephus actually lived closer to the events of the Exodus than we do to Josephus today. So much closer to the events that happened, maybe a little better source or witness to that. So basically what Josephus is writing here is the exact thing that we see in Scripture. This is a new pharaoh that had recently been there. So looking at that, we see that it's right in the same and the right time period. If we're looking at the High Egyptian chronology, which I believe actually is the exact thing, especially looking at ancient paleoastronomy and what the Egyptians would have done, they were very much in tradition of recording the same place from the same time because this whole rise of the star in Sirius would have been recorded in Memphis throughout all of history. In fact, we know it was the case all the way until right before Christ was born that that was where it was recorded at, and then later, about 80 or sorry, BC 70 was when it went to Alexandria. So looking at that. The Egyptians throughout time basically recorded at the same time. So I think that old high chronology is kind of the step that we would look at. And so that places the Exodus time frame of 1446 right around that same time or that rule of Amenhotep II, given a few years back and forth there. And you can look at many, there's Wikipedia that says one thing, there's Encyclopedia Britannica that says another thing, there's a British Museum plaque to say, but right around the same years, give or take about five to eight years, is typically what we're looking at. So Amenhotep II, the right time, and the right place. That's the next one. So when you look at the 18th dynasty of Egypt, the whole list of pharaohs that I showed you, every single one of those pharaohs had their ruling city way down here in what we call Upper Egypt. Remember I told you last week it's kind of the opposite. This is where the river flows from south to north. So this is kind of up for them and down. So Upper Egypt, they ruled and reigned from Thebes. Now, there's one pharaoh during that Egyptian 18th dynasty that actually rules from Memphis, way up there. Guess what that one pharaoh happened to be? Amenhotep II. So there's only one pharaoh out of all the list of people that Moses could have been talking to and saying, hey, let my people go. No, okay, fine. Here's, here comes a plague. We go back and hang out in Goshen and then back and forth, back and forth. The only pharaoh he could have really had those conversations with pretty quickly would have been Amenhotep II. Now, from, from Memphis, from way up in the Delta, I should say, all the way down to Thebes, where Luxor is today, if you're traveling down that Nile River, it's about a 450-mile journey. It's a long ways to go back and forth to say, hey, 
Pharaoh, let my people go. And then all the way back to hang out in Goshen, as we see the back and forth, that Moses wasn't just staying in the palace. He was actually staying and going back and forth to talk with his brother Aaron and to talk to the people up there. So we know, based upon what Scripture tells us, that where the Pharaoh was living would have been very close to where the Hebrew people were living. So looking at this, the only possible Pharaoh that we can identify that would have been living in the correct location, again, is Amenhotep II. So, the right place. And then we get to an interesting thing about his life, and that is what we refer to as slave captures. Amenhotep II, um, he's known for basically going out and capturing hundreds of thousands of slaves. In fact, it's recorded um, that some of his campaigns, his expeditions, he records capturing over 100,000 slaves in one single campaign. Now, these slaves all come from a particular region. They come from the same region, basically the land of Canaan. He captures a whole bunch of these Amu, these Asiatics. And in fact, he also says they record, he captured some people that were Hebrew-speaking people. So perhaps some of the other descendants of Abraham, like Esau and the Edomites and the Amalekites, they were all Hebrew-speaking people being descendants from Abraham. So when we look at this, we can see that all of a sudden, this pharaoh has to run out and grab a whole bunch of slaves and bring them back to Egypt. Now, why in the world would a pharaoh have to replenish his slave population? Hmm, I wonder why. Maybe you just lost a whole bunch of slaves? Maybe you had a great slave working force, and maybe these slaves actually became so numerous that you had to oppress them and keep them down in numbers, and now maybe these slaves have all left, and now you have nobody to tend your fields or to take care of anything, so now you have to go back and bring back a huge number of people. I mean, estimates show us that the amount of people leaving for the Exodus was perhaps up to 3 million people, right? You've got to go back, and that's a huge slave population to replenish. Now, many Egyptologists have said, well, you know, Amenhotep must have been exaggerating with the numbers of people. There's no way he could have brought back 100,000 people. That's what we records, and multiple times we have that, so it could, in fact, be true, and certainly you would have to replenish a huge slave population. Now, before the Exodus, you got all the slaves you need, right? In fact, the Bible says that they became numerous and plentiful. The Pharaoh had to oppress them and keep their numbers down and you know, throw all those baby boys into the Nile River, right? Because they were so numerous. Well, now we have the exact opposite problem. Now, looking at Amenhotep II, he has captured and brought back more slaves than every other pharaoh of the 18th dynasty combined. Huge amount of people he has to bring back. And where does he bring them back to? Where does he house them? Where does his new slave population reside? Right in the land of Goshen. In other words, they come back, hey, here's empty houses, apartments for all you slaves. Go live right there. There's a vacuum of slave power, the slave population in Egypt that gets replenished by Amenhotep II and uh, none other. So looking at this, we can see here that this military campaign, uh, some biblical archaeologists have placed this at about seven months after the date for the Exodus. So right after they take off, they've got to run out and grab some people. So he captured about 3,600 Apiru, which are the Hebrew-speaking people we talked about last week. Doesn't necessarily mean it was the, um, the Hebrews that left Egypt, because as we know, there are many other Hebrew-speaking people, the family of Abraham throughout the region, um, but it could have been some that were stragglers. I don't know. It doesn't record that in the Bible, so I kind of doubt that. But certainly Hebrew-speaking people in the area. So he brings back these 3,600 Apiru that he makes specific mention of. So out of all the people he's bringing back, he specifically mentions this certain people group. And 101, 128,000 slaves that he brings back. And during this time, he not only records that, but Amenhotep II records how much hatred he had for these Apiru, for these other what we call Asiatic slave people that he was bringing back from that region. He has such hatred for them that one recording, Egyptologists have translated as saying that he actually surrounded and captured about 300 slaves uh, or 300 people that were living there that he was going to take back, and uh, they were trying to get away, so instead of having them get away, he dug a big pit in the ground, set it on fire, and threw these 300 people into there. That's how much hatred he had burning for these Hebrew-speaking Asiatic slaves. Now, if you were the pharaoh of the Exodus, and all of a sudden all these people leave, and they basically put you to shame, you're going to have a lot of hatred, right? Looking at this, this happens during Amenhotep's military campaign, right after the Exodus. So as we look here, we continue to see that these slaves that are captured are brought right back here into the Delta area. This is kind of where they repopulate, in the exact same area where the Hebrew people were just at. Now they left. He goes up here and grabs a whole bunch of other people and brings them back down and puts them right back in place, but uh, basically into open, empty cities at this point. As we continue, one more clue that we see in Scripture, 
And that has to do with the last and final plague that we see in the book of Exodus. And that, of course, is the death of the firstborn, right? Now, if Moses was there, I mean, as, as Moses was there telling the Pharaoh that the death of the firstborn was going to happen, and this was going to happen throughout the city, throughout the land, everywhere except for Goshen, basically, that would also include the Pharaoh and his family, too, right? Now, interestingly enough, if Amenhotep II was a firstborn, shouldn't he have died, too? Scripture's pretty clear that the firstborn, even the cattle, it said, firstborn of those would also die. Interestingly enough, Amenhotep II was not a firstborn. He was not the firstborn to be in place for ruling the reigning. So you kind of see that he would have been spared with the rest of those who, uh, who would have died. The firstborn would have died, but Amenhotep not being a firstborn, he would have survived. Now, we look at his son, the IV. Amenhotep's son, the IV, became the next pharaoh, the next ruler of Egypt. the IV was also not a firstborn. His older brother died. He was a, a child of, of Amenhotep II and his royal great queen wife, her name was Tia. He was second son to them. The firstborn male heir of Amenhotep II disappears from history. He's recorded about for a time, and then he just basically vanishes off the page book of history. Now looking at that, that's exactly what the Bible would describe to us, right? The death of the firstborn, even the death of the Pharaoh's own son that we would see. Now, Amen, sorry, uh, Tutmose IV here that you see, he was a pretty young Pharaoh when he came to power. A little interesting story behind that. We actually have a record of him even telling us that he was not the firstborn heir. And uh, if you ever go to Egypt, to Cairo, where the Sphinx is at, the pyramids just behind it, there's a big stela right here, which is basically a recording of special events and pronouncements and all kinds of stuff. But this stela was erected by Tutmose IV, okay, the son of Amenhotep II, and he records in there how he was basically exploring the area, running around in a chariot, and he was hunting different animals. And he became very, very tired in the late afternoon with the desert sun above his head. So he decided to lay down and take a nap in the shadow of the Sphinx at that point. And at that point, back in those days when he was around, the Sphinx was covered by sand. In fact, it was covered by sand until like the 1800s when he started to kind of unbury it. But it was covered up to its neck in sand. So the big lion body that we typically see today was not visible. It was buried up to its neck in sand. And so Amenhotep the fourth, or sorry, Tutmos the fourth, takes a nap right underneath the chin of the Sphinx there in the shadow to keep out of the desert sun. And while he's sleeping, he has a dream. And in this dream, he says that the great Sphinx speaks to him. And he tells him, if you will unbury me, if you will uncover me, I will make you the pharaoh of all Egypt. And so he, he basically goes and sets about doing that, and then he becomes the next pharaoh. So historians and Egyptologists have said this might have been his way of kind of sharing to people how he became pharaoh, right? Because it was unusual circumstance, because pretty much people knew he wasn't you know, the next in line. But somehow, this was maybe his excuse for how he became the pharaoh. But even in that description, that depiction, we know that he was not the firstborn. His older brother, he talks about, was supposed to be the first in line, and now he was the first in line. And so he basically attributes that, he attributes it to the states. You know, probably didn't really acknowledge God at that point. But he attributes that um, rise to power to the states. We have the record that's actually still there today. You could actually go there and check it out. So he's not the firstborn. He's his secondborn. So when you begin to look at all this evidence that we see, not only in the Bible, but in Egyptian history, you begin to look at a lot of these things. Amenhotep II, I believe, is the right time, the right place. The slave captures add to that. And the death of his firstborn is also part of what we see in Egyptian history. So when we look at the Bible, what God reveals to us in Scripture is what we find exactly in archaeology, in Egyptology, in history. We see time and time again that God's word is true. And this is just a small snapshot in time of a time and a place and an event that we see correlation. When you begin to look at it, it's amazing. I kind of shared last week about Egyptian history and how little we actually know. We have amazing cities that are completely lost. Um, cities like Ichtawe, which was the capital city during the grand you know, 12th dynasty, which was a fantastic time period of growth and of, of development and consolidation of the ancient Egyptian empire. That massive capital city, we still don't even know for certain where it is today. Now, so many things have been lost in the ancient Egyptian sands. We know very little history, but we are uncovering more and more and more. And the more that we uncover, the more that we discover, the more that we see, guess what? It points to God's word being true. Now, there are so many other topics we could talk about tonight. 
um, on this, but I wanted to at least just try to identify a few of these here before we have some time for questions here in a moment. Uh, but looking at this, again, God's word is true. We see that, you know, Adam and I work in the Grand Canyon all the time. We see that with the rocks and the geology. We like to say the rocks cry out. You know, they speak as a testimony of God's word being true, of things like the creation event and the flood in Genesis 6, 7, and 8. We see throughout time and history in the Bible that God's word completely stands on its own. We don't need geology. We don't need archaeology to prove God's word because it never will prove God's word. God's word stands alone. But when we see exciting things that begin to add up and we begin to say, yeah, here's what we find, a discovery here and a discovery here and a discovery here. It's exciting, isn't it? I get excited. I know I love it. You can probably tell that by the way I talk and I talk so fast. But looking at this snapshot of where we see perhaps the Pharaoh of the Exodus, some of the reasons behind that, um, some of the research that I've been doing for the last few years, uh, there's so many other exciting things that we can uncover and discover tonight. Um, where's that scare of it? You guys got that going around still? Make sure everyone gets a chance to take a look at it. Pretty cool. So looking at this, of course, all of these events set us up for the next big step, which I'm not going to really dive into tonight, which of course is the actual Exodus event itself, the crossing of the Red Sea, um, you know, traveling through where Sinai is, perhaps things like that. But when we look at it, one last little final thing I do want to kind of note, we talked about Amenhotep II coming back with a bunch of slaves, right? Right after all the slaves left, he comes back, and some people might have been scratching their heads and saying, well, wait a minute, didn't the Pharaoh die in the Red Sea? Scripture doesn't tell us that. Now, I know that's many times in Hollywood. Again, personally, I feel that Hollywood has got that wrong in that case. Scripture does not tell us that Pharaoh died in the Red Sea. It tells us that his men, his horses and chariots, those who went in after them were drowned in the Red Sea but it never mentions the Pharaoh himself drowning in the Red Sea itself. And I, I tend to think that if the Pharaoh himself drowned in the Red Sea, Scripture would record that, would have mentioned that Pharaoh himself was. Now, of course, when they go after the Hebrew people as they're leaving, he doesn't take the entire army. Scripture is very clear that it was horsemen and chariots, those who were fast and able to catch up to them pretty quickly. But if you look at it, the Pharaoh oftentimes was not leading the chariots into battle like you would see sometimes in, in Hollywood, right? He's not running through, leading them in. Typically, the Pharaoh's a smart guy. He's standing back up here watching the battle with his generals and commanding them where to go and things to see and what to do, oftentimes like modern-day generals would do. That's how Egyptian warfare typically would happen in the past. Of course, the Pharaoh would take all the glory and fame and credit for the warfare, right? And a lot of exaggeration. But typically, the Pharaoh himself would not be the one leading them into battle. He would be the one back there making decisions. Now, Scripture, again, does not tell us that Pharaoh himself drowned in the Exodus. Personally, I don't think that it happened that way. When you look at the timeline, we don't find evidence of these pharaohs drowning in the Red Sea. We don't, we don't all of a sudden come across a missing pharaoh, that we have all these other pharaohs, and this guy we never found because he's somewhere floating in the sea. Uh, we do have a record. We do have the mummies of a lot of these pharaohs from the same time, and looking at them, they don't seem to have drowned in any sort of a big Red Sea accident. So I tend to think, like a few other Egyptian um, archaeologists, biblical archaeologists, that the Pharaoh himself did not necessarily drown in the sea. His men did. They were wiped out, devastated the nation, but the Pharaoh himself continued on, of course, greatly weakened from that. So hopefully that's the first little answer to a, a question that might be burning. Um, we've got some time, I think, right now, don't we, for some other questions, if anybody has. Again, I'm not the all-going expert up here. I'm just stuff I love to study and to research, so I love discussion and dialogue, so we can do some of that tonight. Question.